Welcome to the Arab Tyrant Manual, our podcast about authoritarianism, how it affects the world, and how to resist it. This is an old discussion we recorded in late November, early December, against the backdrop of uh, large-scale nonviolent protests in Palestine. And they've fled up again in the last week, so we've decided to release this episode. We've just finished the book that we've been working on for the last few months, so hopefully we'll have more regular episodes coming up soon including several episodes about our book. Since we recorded this discussion, Gene Sharp has passed away. We mention him, and so we're dedicating this episode to his memory. Hope you enjoy it. I'm watching a video it's a video from one of the protests that are going on in Palestine, in the Palestinian territories right now. And it shows a bunch of soldiers arresting a little, a little boy. He could be 10, 9 years old maybe. Wait, the video shows several children being arrested. And this was posted by Ben White on his Twitter account. This is the kind of picture that exposes the realities and completely defeats Israeli PR. This is the kind of footage they don't want out there. And you know what? You don't get this kind of footage. You don't get this kind of dynamic if you're dealing with a primarily violent uprising. If this is a militant uprising, you don't get that. And if this is a militant uprising, then they can partly justify that. They can say, you know what? This is about security. This is about terrorism. So when the resistance movement is violent they can basically draw a lot of legitimacy abroad by promoting the violent attacks and saying this justifies the extreme measures that we're having to take, this justifies massive campaigns of detentions, this justifies suspending civil liberties, collective punishment. And they manage to basically draw a picture for the world that they don't want to do what they're doing, but they have no choice. One of the main campaigns employed, I think, to some measure of success, especially in the United States, by Israeli PR, by pro-Israeli organizations, is what would you do? What would you do if, you know, you had missiles raining down on you? What would you do if a militant group is basically digging tunnels in order to come into your neighborhood and kidnap some civilians and then take them into custody and to use them as, you know, as leverage? And this is the thing. Violent conflict empowers and legitimizes Israeli occupation. You see, Israel says that it has to continue with this occupation because of security. It's a security issue. We have to be there because we have to preempt all of these violent attacks. We have to prevent rocket attacks. We have to prevent different kinds of uh, suicide operations, etc. So this is what justifies it. This is their justification system. The problem with this is when we, when we discuss the matter of violence versus nonviolence, one main problem is that people think that we're moralizing. They, they think that we're actually saying that we're kind of denouncing them at a moral level. This is something I remember from the works of Gene Sharp, one of the greatest theorists of nonviolent struggle in the last century. And he repeatedly said in his works that I'm advocating nonviolence, but I'm not going to bring morality into it. I'm not going to bring religion into it. I'm advocating nonviolence purely from a strategic level. And he argues that nonviolence is more likely to be successful, less likely to be defeated. There's a number of reasons why violence is, especially for struggles for civil liberties or, you know, for social justice, there's a number of reasons why violence is counterproductive in these kind of struggles. 
Of course, there are nonviolence activists who actually take a very strong moral stance against violent resistance. But most of the arguments that I employ are not based upon moral arguments. And in fact, I'm, I'm not completely sure that violent resistance is necessarily immoral. I mean, of course, there are certain actions which are immoral, such as targeting civilians, such as indiscriminate attacks. And, you know, these are really actually really well codified in international law if you actually take the time to read through, for example, war crimes law or basic human rights law, you will find that there, there is a lot of nuance and there's a lot of discussion on the morality of certain, of certain actions. And they distinguish between what constitutes self-defense versus... No, they, they even go further than that and they, they even speak about situations or kind of actions which might harm civilians who are not involved in the fighting, either directly or indirectly, either individually as, as individuals or as a group. So, for example, you know, if you start to hide your weapons or hide your, your militants inside a civilian vehicles, and you do that at a mass scale, then what happens is that you're actually endangering every single civilian vehicle. And this is where you need that kind of dialectic or that kind of discussion or debate. Is this worth it or not? Do the people who, are, who you are putting in danger, do they give you that consent or not? The main point here is that it's not really about moralizing. It's not really about morality versus immorality. That's not the angle. I mean, I think that there is a moral argument to be had. There is a moral discussion to be had. But I think people don't really switch to a moral way of thinking until you actually satisfy an, another avenue of thinking or another kind of thinking, which is what works and what doesn't work. And I think we've seen that even when it comes to uh, the appeal of the populists. Sometimes we're completely astounded at the immoral policies that some constituents, some of our, our own countrymen, people who live with us in the same society, were sometimes really surprised about the lack of compassion that they can show in electing someone who, for example, doesn't support my rights or wants me to be expelled, doesn't care what kind of fate befalls me. But at the same time, we kind of become selfish when we're scared and in pain. When you feel unsafe, when you feel you have, you're facing an existential threat, one of the first things you do is that you switch to self-defense mode, and when you, when you do that, you kind of become selfish, at least about your group. If not about yourself personally, then at least about your group and what you, what you decide is my tribe. The point here is that the main arguments for nonviolence are actually not moral in nature. It's basically about what works and what doesn't work. So if you're fighting a struggle against injustice, against a stronger side, by trying to adopt violence, you're actually fighting them on the ground on which they feel most secure and on which they already have an advantage. If you're fighting a stronger side who are committing injustices against you and you decide to use violence, you're fighting on their battlefield, on their home ground. If you take that to nonviolent resistance, to disobedience, for example, you're fighting them in places where they don't feel completely comfortable because they're being exposed for their brutality. So they're having to adopt tactics and methods which don't have the support of the rest of the population or the rest of the world. This is often being televised, like, for example, you, you mentioned the Palestinian struggle, the First Intifada, which we'll get to, but also Martin Luther King's struggle. What he basically did was take the violent tactics of American law enforcement and broadcast it to the rest of the country, and it made people incredibly uncomfortable to watch because here were these guys basically kneeling on the ground and holding their hands above their heads and still being brutalized. 
and there was no way to defend it. I know people have questions about how this relates to the Syrian revolution, and we'll probably record an entire episode about that soon. The point here is that there is this question. Let's say that you have to actually duel with the heavyweight boxing champion in the world. How do you defeat him? You don't play boxing. If you play boxing, you're actually playing his game. The moment you actually decide, I'm going to box this guy, you already lost. But what if, for example, you play chess with him? What if you play table tennis? What if you play a game that actually neutralizes his own advantage? You're kind of saying, you know what, I acknowledge that you have this advantage, but power is not all about brute force. I remember writing a thread about nonviolence, and this was beginning of the year. And I think I, I have these threads on my Twitter account going back many years. So the reason why I wrote this thread was because I think there, there's a certain misunderstanding of nonviolence. People think that nonviolence means I'm relying upon the conscience of the guy who's beating me up. They think that nonviolence means, you know what, you know, this guy's going to beat me up and I'm just going to basically lie down on the ground or something. Basically, you know, give him a flower or something. Let's hold hands and sing Kumbaya and hope it all ends well. There, there's this misunderstanding where they think that nonviolence means peacefulness. It's not peacefulness. Nonviolence is waging war by another means. It's waging struggle by another means. And it's, in fact, it takes more courage to, for you to face a brutal enemy without a weapon than it is with a weapon. I mean, it actually takes more courage for you to face down security forces when you're unarmed. And there is more risk to you, so you're actually more likely to have to sacrifice yourself or sacrifice your safety. So this is the point. I mean, going back to your point, violence forces the hand of the state. And it allows us to declare a war on terror with everything that that entails. Unfortunately, there's precedent for this. And war on terror rhetoric is not just rhetoric now. It's basically a legal system that kicks into force as soon as the state finds that it is justified in declaring a war on terror. And it has a lot of international appeal, unfortunately. There's actually international cooperations that kick into place, treaties that kick into place. The moment you say, this is about terrorism. You mentioned that people are very unimaginative about nonviolence. They think that it's basically lying down and taking whatever is given to you. Gene Sharp actually published a pamphlet on methods of nonviolent protest and persuasion, and he lists 198 different methods, including vigils, marches, parades, etc. But going beyond that to things like mock funerals, to things like organizing mock elections in protest at elections not being honored, things like turning your back excommunication, refusal to rent. In fact, there is this misunderstanding. When we talk about nonviolence, people think that it means protests. They're actually just one method. They're not always the best method, especially when you're beginning a struggle. Protests are actually, these are kind of like mass mobilization tactics. And these kind of things are expensive because you're actually putting all of your assets in one place. The, the cost might be high when it comes to attrition, when it comes to injuries, even people might die, etc. So I think there is a lack of imagination. And yeah, Gene Sharp lists 198, I think you said, tactics. But you can actually brainstorm and you can come with like 2,000, depending upon your own context and your own understanding of your own situation. One of our friends, Serge Popovic, who's a nonviolent Serbian political activist, he was the leader of the student movement Otpor, which helped topple Milosevic. He has a center called Center for Applied Nonviolent Actions and Strategies. And what he basically does is try to teach activists to strategize and to plan their own methods of nonviolent resistance unique to their own context by taking into account 
the power centers of the power that they're trying to struggle against, where it derives its legitimacy from, where it derives its strength from, and systematically undermining them using nonviolence. So this is something that's important to explain over here. When you said about you have to be mindful of the power center that you're trying to wage the struggle against, the main point over here, the main currency of state building and state legitimacy is consent. It's not always that the citizens give consent enthusiastically. Sometimes they give their consent to the government to actually rule them and to actually implement its own laws, etc. Sometimes it's because they're scared. Sometimes because they're dependent. You know, there's economic dependence. Sometimes it's because it's just habit. If they give consent, it doesn't always mean that they're actually enthusiastically supportive of the government. That's a situation where consent is actually extracted. So there's push and pull factors that allow a state to derive that kind of consent. And of course, we say that a legitimate state does not have to go to such extremes as intimidation or threats to get that kind of consent from the population. However, the point of nonviolent struggle over here is to attack consent. Think of it this way. In order for the guy on top to implement his plan, what does he have to do? He's not the one who's actually running each and every police center in the country. He's not the one who's actually controlling every, each and every gun in the country. His orders have to propagate through a chain of command. And that itself, that chain of command itself does not exist in a vacuum. It exists in a context, in a social context. So there are people who are supplying, there are allies. There are the people who live there and who, who see this and they approve or disapprove. I think ultimately what this boils down to is that military power can only get you so far. The USSR, the Soviet Union, was the single, I think at the time it was collapsed, it was the single largest army in the world and had the most number of nuclear weapons in the world. It had enough nuclear weapons to actually end life on Earth, and yet it collapsed. No amount of military power could stop it from collapsing. So what I'm trying to say over here, and of course there are economic reasons, political reasons, etc. But what I'm trying to say here is that military power can only get you so far. Delegitimization can be a powerful weapon against institutional injustice. And I urge people who are interested in the struggle for social justice, I urge them to learn more about this, to learn more about nonviolent tactics, nonviolent strategy, the theory of nonviolence, or the theory of what makes an unjust system able to entrench itself, able to operate, and able to institutionalize. And if you are interested, I urge you to check out the works of Gene Sharp and the Albert Einstein Institute, which was set up to promote his ideas. Getting into specifics here, as a tyrant, effective nonviolent activism is a massive threat, and therefore you have an incentive to stop it from happening to push it towards violence in order to give yourself that legitimization that you're fighting a war on terror and have to therefore take extreme measures. Violent struggle is the easiest way to give an oppressor a perfect pretext to change the narrative from we are oppressed to look at those terrorists. And there are many examples of that. The best example I can think about is Bashar al-Assad, where you had this uprising. The Syrian uprising was basically it started as a non-violent series of protests all over Syria, and non-violence was its, was its main character for the first few months. And Assad goes ahead. There are many things they do to incite violence. One of the things they do to incite violence is simply to wage violence. They hope that you will pick up a gun to defend yourself. And the moment you pick up a gun, they call you a terrorist. But then Bashar al-Assad went further than that, and he actually started releasing uh, jihadists from jail, and he released them in batches starting between June 2011 
And this went on to, I think, to mid-2012. And he's releasing jihadists from jail, even while he's arresting nonviolent activists. And he's either torturing them, putting them in jail, disappearing them, etc. He implemented this strategy in order to change the character of the Syrian uprising from being a nonviolent uprising to being a war and terror. So a lot of stuff's been written on that, a lot of which has been forgotten since, but uh, listeners can check out the works of Michael Weiss and Hassan Hassan, who are experts on this dynamic of how Assad tried to radicalize the Syrian uprising by releasing jihadists. So you contrast that extreme leniency towards known religious extremists with the extreme violence and brutality with which he treated strict non-violent activists. For example, Riyath Matar, who was killed, he was an activist who led many of the non-violent protests and they actually gave out roses to the soldiers on the streets to emphasize the fact that they weren't armed and that they wanted peaceful change. Uh, this is an important point also about women's rights activism. The fact is that the easiest way for you to disappear women from the struggle is to make it violent. Because violence requires mostly men, less frequently women, so non-fighters end up in less active roles, and often they end up sidelined. And this is actually what happened with the Syrian revolution as well. You know, women were at the forefront of, of those protests. And then the moment it becomes a civil war, well, it becomes all about the young guys who, who carry guns, and the contribution of women becomes kind of behind the lines now. Of course, this goes beyond just women, because the moment it becomes war, you're also talking about activating only the able-bodied part of your population. What about the children? What about the elderly? What about people who might not be able to carry a gun? They are basically relegated to side roles. The main show becomes the violence, and everything else becomes kind of a sideshow. Meanwhile, if you actually have a non-violent struggle, you can activate the entire population. So basically, you effectively empower the demographic segment, which is probably least pragmatic and most prone to rashness. Of course, I, d I don't want to minimize their sacrifice. They might think that, you know, this is the only thing that's possible and they might display immense courage. But the fact is that we have empirical evidence that when women are involved in a movement, it is more likely to show compassion, it's more likely to avoid violence, and it's more likely to succeed. There is a lot of empirical evidence that when women are involved in negotiations and post-conflict settlements, it's, it's a lot more likely to succeed and a lot less likely to slide back into violence. But on the, on the topic of non-violence in action, we have this example, this natural experiment in Palestine, where you had two intifadas. The first one was uh, largely non-violent, largely c conducted with stone-throwing, peaceful marches and demonstrations, etc. And then the second in the early 2000s being very different. Well, the first intifada started organically. So it was kind of a long way coming, but nobody really started it. I think within a couple of weeks, several grassroots organizations started to coordinate their actions. During the six years, we're talking about 1987 to 1993, at least officially, there was a lot of violence, of course. At least in the beginning, I think in the, last, in the first six, six months or even a year, there were no casualties, there were no deaths on the Israeli side. It was only the Palestinians who were being killed. It was not a militant uprising. The idea here of children using stones, throwing stones at tanks, that was a powerful, powerful visual. And a visual that even people who were very supportive of Israel at the time were very embarrassed. They couldn't defend it. It was indefensible. 
So nonviolent struggle was able to expose the brutality of the occupation. The second intifada, on the other hand, was, you know, by then, several militant organizations had sprung up, including Hamas and Islamic Jihad, etc., and including milit- the militant wing of Fatah. And what happened is that the second intifada was markedly militant, and the militancy was basically overwhelming dynamic. And this is why the first intifada was highly successful when you look at the political outcome, not to minimize the effect of other world changes as well, such as the fall of the Soviet Union, the very bad decision by the PLO to back Saddam during the second Gulf War. But the first intifada was more successful, far more successful than the second intifada. The second intifada, despite all the sacrifices, despite the violence, the second intifada was actually, if you look at it politically, it was actually a failure because Israel was able to employ war and terror rhetoric. It was able to justify its occupation as security measures and nobody could blame it. States are violent organisms. States justify their own legitimacy by saying that, you know, a state is supposed to have monopoly over the use of force in its own territories. The moment a state is challenged violently through, on its own territory, it has this powerful uh, legal principle on its side, which is to say that the state has the right to defend itself. And the ultimate consequence of the Second Intifada, as well as the militancy that had been carried out before and after, was the empowerment of hardliners and right-wingers, the construction of the separation wall, blockade, and policies that would have been indefensible otherwise, unless you were basically saying we're fighting a war against terrorism. I want to bring attention to another point over here, which is that violent struggle is negative. And by negative, what I mean by negative is that it works by destroying things. And I don't mean only destroying buildings and, you know, killing people, but I mean the use of modern warfare, modern weapons, makes it impossible to conduct a violent struggle without heavy civilian suffering and, so- and social destruction. You need arms, you need, you need a, a regular supply, a steady flow of ammunition, etc. This necessitates external sponsors. You become very easily beholden to an external sponsor who's supplying you with those weapons. They can bend you to their will and affect your agenda, affect your priorities, your ability to make your own decisions independently, and that down the line can have its own consequences for your legitimacy. For example, the loss of legitimacy within the Arab world of, say, Hamas, because after the Syrian uprising, they were unable to take a strong line in support of the Syrian people against Bashar al-Assad, even though Assad had killed many Palestinians. Why? Because one of their principal backers was the Iranian regime, and the Iranian regime was strongly supporting Assad as well. Eventually, they couldn't uphold that position because they were very sensitive to the fact that it was making them very unpopular. So eventually, they actually did ditch the Iranian axis, and they ran out of sponsors. You see, this is the thing. When you employ militancy, then you always need a sponsor. You will never be independent. Meanwhile, if your movement is nonviolent, then you're basically relying mostly upon the energy and creativity and courage of your own people. And because of that, you actually have more power, you have more negotiating, you have more, more bargaining power in the end, because you're self-motivated. And again, we're not going to mention every single nonviolent struggle in this discussion, but I invite listeners to make their own comparisons with the ANC and Nelson Mandela in South Africa, with Gandhi's movement in India, and many other struggles. Well, since we're on that, what is interesting over here, when you actually compare this to to Gandhi or to MLK or to Mandela, 
is that these were struggles for civil rights. There is a marked difference between a struggle for civil rights and a struggle for national liberation. Struggles for national liberation, by their nature, by, you know, by their stated objective, they're framed in a zero-sum way. As in, we want to gain our independence and we don't want you here. We want to gain our independence for our people. This framing on its own already makes the conflict zero-sum. And it already makes it very difficult to wage a nonviolent struggle in the first place. This is why, I mean, if you actually go down history, you will find so many examples of defeated national liberation struggles. And we can list them or, you know, we, you can Google it yourself. There are many instances of national liberation struggles that were resoundly defeated. But arguably, you can't find a single civil rights struggle that was resoundly and permanently defeated. Sometimes they're defeated for a while. Like some people might cite, for example, China, Tiananmen. We can argue that that's still ongoing. The story has not seen its last chapter. This is important for, the, for this kind of thing because if you frame your struggle as a national liberation struggle, if it becomes kind of zero-sum, then it's very difficult for you to actually wage that kind of struggle non-violently. It is possible. For example, if we look at Catalonia, they actually tried to do that non-violently. It didn't really work so far. Questionable whether it will work if the neighbors don't legitimize it. But going back to the main point, so long you frame it as a civil rights struggle, you will win. Sooner or later, you will win. And even if you don't win, then the damage that you're causing your enemy, the damage when it comes to reputation, when it comes to legitimacy, it's something that often they can't recover from. It's difficult to actually explain everything about nonviolence in a single podcast. You can actually do a PhD on this. You can study it for years and still only scratch the surface. In fact, a lot more study of it needs to be done. There's too much study comparatively, too much emphasis being placed on violence, on political violence, on study of war, and not enough being placed on the study of nonviolence. And another note, notice how the narratives of extremists and authoritarians coincide on this point. Both of them are threatened by nonviolence and both of them are empowered by violence. So in this scenario in which, for example, if there is a terrorist attack, another massive terrorist attack, another 2001, for example, another September the 11th, in America under Trump, he will use this to massively escalate the authoritarian powers of government, try to implement some kind of internment, and this would not only empower Trump, but it would in return vindicate people like ISIS who are trying to sell it as a clash of civilizations, as America is out to get Muslims, as the two of us can't coexist, one of us has to defeat the other in a final battle. Uh, so, so this is why a, a narrative of nonviolence and a narrative of civil rights is one that actually undermines both the actors. It actually undermines the terrorists and it undermines the tyrants. But yeah, I mean, one of the main arguments that the jihadists employed was that because these regimes are so brutal, the only kind of organization that can win is an organization that is as brutal. And not only just brutal, but also messianic in its faith. It takes that kind of almost suicidal kind of violence to face something like, you know, the Assad Syria or Gaddafi's Libya, for example. And this is why for a long time, the duality was really between jihadists and tyrants, between terrorists and tyrants. Before the Arab Spring started, I was actually convinced, and a lot of people were convinced, that the only thing that can work against these regimes is massive violence. I actually did not start from a place where I actually believed in nonviolence. But then when the, when the Tunisian revolution succeeded, that was such 
a shock. It was a shock to me as someone who once believed in Salafi jihadism, someone who, who once was radicalized. So as a result, when bin Laden was killed in May uh, 2011, I wrote a blog post in which I argued that the idea of violence, the very idea upon which jihadism was built, which is the idea of violence, the idea that violence is the only way, violence is the only thing that can work, that idea was already damaged. So I believe that ideologically speaking, the low point, the extreme low point of the jihadists was sometime in early 2011 until the Syrian revolution started to get really, really bloody. And that's when I actually wrote another, another blog post. I think I, I, I wrote this in late 2011, and I said, I called it resuscitating the fossil. I said, the, the violence that's, that's taking place in Syria by the Assad regime is resuscitating the fossils, the bones, the dead bones of jihadism. And then after the coup in Egypt, um, basically ISIS put out statements and released videos mocking the Muslim Brotherhood and mocking people who had believed that it's possible to change regimes through politics and to institute reform in these countries through politics. They basically said, your faith in democracy has been exposed to be nonsensical. The only way you can ever have change is through joining an extremist movement and basically speaking to the masses and, and saying, if you try to affect change through nonviolence, you're going to fail. So join us. I think the story of ISIS itself has another lesson for us, which is that given the nature of violent struggle, it's unpredictable, and hence it can be hijacked by factions that don't share the original goals. And even if violent struggle is successful, it often leaves a country that is so deeply traumatized that it might take generations to recover, such as in Libya. So as you see, most of the reasons that we have been discussing today are not moralistic. They're, they're actually strategic. And I think there is empirical research that suggests that nonviolent struggle has a far higher probability of success than violent struggle. So struggles against tyranny, be it for social justice or democracy or human rights, they are struggles of attrition. So you have to be prepared to fight long term. It's not a struggle for the impatient. It's not a struggle for someone who is easily offended or who's looking for a quick win. It's not a boxing match. It's a struggle to transform politics and to transform the, the structure of power in society. So in these kind of struggles, giving in is not an option. Giving in is not an option, but I, th I think it's also important to note that living under oppression is also not an option. I mean, it's against human nature to expect people to just accept to live forever as subhumans. If you're put in that kind of situation, it is not possible not to resist. It is not possible to ask the oppressed to not push back. But this is why it's important to talk about the strategy of resistance, and this is why it's important to talk about nonviolence. To sum up, violent resistance is a terrible strategy. Nonviolence is strategic, and its victory is long-term. You have to have that long-term commitment. That's all for this episode of the Arab Tyrant Manual. As usual, we look forward to your thoughts and feedback. The hashtag is Arab Tyrant Manual on Twitter. And we'll have more episodes coming up soon. In the meantime, do check out the works of Gene Sharp. They will enrich you.
تلقيت يوم حب زمان المزين